Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. On today's episode, we have the co-founder of Precision Strategies, Stephanie Cutter. So Precision is a digitally forward public affairs shop whose founders helped elect and re-elect President Barack Obama. And our guest today, Stephanie, has also worked with our newly elected President Joe Biden. She was one of the producers of the socially distanced inauguration on January 20th um, and the virtual Democratic National Convention that was held last fall. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. So Stephanie, you have such an impressive career in politics that I'm sure I didn't do it justice just now in my, in my, brief, in my brief introduction. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background? Sure. Um, so I spent many years in democratic politics um, from you know way back, uh, even just growing up. My grandfather was very involved, so we were always around it. Um, out of college, I worked for uh, Mario Cuomo, who was then the governor of New York, who was thinking about running for president. Uh, and I joined as a, you know, somebody answering the phones and worked my way up to do speech writing and, um, and policy and, and things like that. Um, and it was a, a formative experience for me. Um, and I was a big fan of Mario Cuomo's. Um, and from there, uh, when uh, Governor Cuomo decided not to run, I left and joined um, then Governor Clinton's campaign, ended up working in the White House, going to law school at night at the White House, um, and just stuck with it. You know, thought I was going to be a lawyer, uh, maybe a prosecutor, but I could never really just extricate myself from uh, the world of politics or government. Um, and, you know, I've worked for lots of people, Ted Kennedy, um, who was uh, probably my greatest mentor, Harry Reid, uh, when he was majority leader of the Senate, uh, Barack Obama, when he was a candidate, and then when he was president, both in the White House and for his reelection campaign. After President Obama was reelected um, in 2013, I started Precision with uh, two colleagues from the campaign, um, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who now um, is in the White House with President Biden, she was his campaign manager, uh, and Teddy Goff, uh, my other partner. And we, the goal was to build an integrated agency because presidential campaigns only work if they are completely integrated. And what I mean by that is, um, if you're launching a TV ad, your message online, your message on the ground, your message door to door, all has to be aligned and very targeted, um, you know, built for the audience you're trying to reach. And the audience you're trying to reach is not monolithic on a presidential campaign. Um, and you really need to understand how to communicate with specific targets. Um, and it takes all of the tools in the toolbox to get that done. And it has to be seamless and integrated. So at that point, nobody was really doing that in the private sector. So we built Precision um, to do very high level targeted campaigns uh, for sports teams, um, sports leagues, um, corporations, advocacy campaigns, um, you know, nonprofits. Um, our clients are very, very diverse. But we've always kept one 
toe, I'd say, not even a whole foot, but one toe um, in politics, because that's, that's our bread and butter. And that's truly where you learn sort of how to, you know, break things and make them better. Um, and, uh, and in this case, you know, for both the virtual convention and the virtual inauguration, that was true. Um, you know, I think we set a, a standard for how to do storytelling through virtual yeah. events um, for, you know, for the, right. for every other sector. Um, so we, you know, kept our toe in politics, yeah. the Biden campaign, Hillary, we do lots of Senate work um, and gubernatorial work. Yeah. Um, so well, let's, um, so let's look specifically then, um, because of course, you know, you, you it sounds like, you know, you built quite a career on sort of integrating different components um, of a campaign, but of course, much of that was thrown into the air over the last 12 months with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I will say having reviewed hundreds of PR award submissions from 2020, a common theme was we had to pivot our live event to online, <laughs> but, but no pivot, I'm sure was as complex as adjusting the DNC and the inauguration for the, mm -hmm. you know, the reality of the pandemic. Um, can you take us back to the early days with the DNC perhaps, and the conversations that you were having, you know, as the world was shutting down last spring and thinking about what, what it would look like and what were the considerations, um, what were the top considerations that you took into account? Sorry, I was dealing with a little virtual learning over here. Um, what were the top considerations in planning yeah, for the convention? Yeah, so, you know, as, as the world was shutting down, I mean, even maybe as early as March, you know, were you all looking out and saying, look, there's no way we're going to be able to get hundreds of people into a convention yeah, center? I don't think anybody really understood in March how long this was going to go. Um, and, you know, uh, in maybe April, we moved the date back from the end of July to the end of August, think that, thinking that would buy us some time. Um, and then it was pretty clear by May that the situation was not going to go away anytime soon and that the pandemic was with us for a while. Um, so we knew we had to make some significant changes um, but that was an iterative process. And um, at first we thought, well, you know, we'll do a hybrid. We'll bring the delegates to Wisconsin, um, but for everybody else, you know, normally at a political convention, there's lots of fundraisers, there's lots of activists, there's organizers, there's candidates looking to get their name out there. There's, you know, tens of thousands of people that come. Um, and we knew when we, we wouldn't be able to do that, but we thought maybe we could bring the delegates. And, uh, that about a month later, it was quickly determined that uh, we, we couldn't even bring the delegates. It was too much of a risk. And, um, and honestly, pres then candidate, Vice President Biden, the candidate um, about to be the Democratic nominee was uh, running his campaign with the strictest protocols because he felt like he needed to be a role model for everybody else across the country. Um, and so there was no room for any risk in that. Uh, regard. So we quickly started doing research of what does a virtual convention look like? And if we are going virtual, then can we throw out the rule book? Can we, what do we need to keep and what can we completely reimagine? Um, and so the things that, you know, people think of in a political convention, they think of the keynote speech, 
Um, they think of the roll call, which is always a big seller. Um, and they think of the nominee's um, speech. So those are three things we can plan the week around, um, but we need a lot more content. And, and how do we keep pe people's attention? Because normally political conventions are not that interesting. <laughs> um, and it's you know one speech after another and nobody pays attention. And, um, and it, doing that online um, can be, uh, I, I couldn't imagine anybody staying online and not just slamming down their computer or shutting off their TV. So how, how do we make that more engaging and more interesting? First, we made a decision to shrink the time. Normally it's four to five to six hours a day of programming. We shrunk that to two hours um, a day. Um, and we also realized that for any political speech, it couldn't really be longer than five minutes max. And the average time that we settled on for these speeches with the exception of the big anchor speeches, which would be the vice president, um, the vice presidential nominee, uh, Senator Harris, um, President Obama, Michelle Obama, um, Bernie Sanders, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, the average time for a speech was about two minutes. And it took a long time for really the political electives to get their head around that. And, you know, at first they thought they were being slighted. We're like, no, 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 trust us. Mm -hmm. This is what you want. You don't want people tuning out. Um, and because of the brevity of those speeches, they were that much better. Yeah. You know, they yeah. cut right to the chase um, and kept people's interest. We also realized that we needed to shake up the content. It couldn't be speech after speech after speech. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th there had to be some surprises and whether it was a performance or a different type of program um, and not just, you know, a direct to camera speech. So we, uh, we mixed it up. We ensured that every night over the course of those two hours, we were telling a, a, a consistent story. Um, and with each speaker uh, telling a piece of it or providing a proof point of it, um, in every performance um, or, um, or segment um, was connected up to that storyline. Um, so that's what we did. It, you know, nobody could really get their heads around what it would be because, um, in terms of you know, delegates or people that were gonna be watching. They thought it would be a constant Zoom call, yeah, <laughs> which we had all been on lots of, um, but it was much different than that. Um, and I think we took people by surprise. Yes, yes. And I think that you mentioned the virtual roll call. And of course, that was well, it was a big hit from from this year. And, um, and I will say, I mean, not only, you know, my five year old um, was had watched the DNC with us, and you kept his attention. So um, oh, really? Yes, yeah. He still calls it the Joe Biden show. Um, <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yeah. I, mean, I probably should turn it on for my <laughs> six year old right now. <laughs> but the roll call was fun. And we felt, you know, in doing that, you know, everybody has been quarantined in their houses mm -hmm. at that point. It was a way for people to see America and get yeah. out of their houses and, and be entertained. So uh, nobody will forget the, uh, the calamari on the road. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that was like a, all week, right? That was like what everybody was tweeting about. Mm -hmm. um, so, so let's let's go to the inauguration for a minute. Um, I mean, of course, not only was it complicated by the pandemic, but of course the January 6th attack mm -hmm. on the Capitol. 
So after the insurrection, you know, I, there were calls that, you know, people were saying, move everything indoors for safety reasons. You know, what, how did you balance, um, you know, the symbolic value of, you know, seeing, you know, the, the president being sworn in um, and, 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 and safety and some of these other considerations, not mm -hmm. only safety against the pandemic, but also um, safety against, you know, any potential terrorism? Um, well, you know, we were all shocked by what happened on January 6th. And, um, you know, I remember actually sitting right here because we, every, we had to plan everything virtually. Um, and I was running a production call and I had CNN on and CNN was reporting um, that the, the insurrectionists had just breached the Capitol. Um, and I said that out loud on the call and, and we had like maybe 10 to 20 seconds of silence, like, wow. And, and what does this mean uh, for an inauguration that was taking place two weeks later? Um, exactly two weeks later. Um, you know, we, we quickly moved into gear, you know, the planning for the inaugural acceptance, the inaugural ceremony, um, it was very much a partnership with um, Congress. Uh, and they weren't going to take any risk. Um, and after just having been through that. Um, and so whenever there is a presidential nominee or president involved, the Secret Service takes over. Um, and it was deemed a national security event, which means a lot of resources are brought to bear on protecting participants. Um, and because of what happened on January 6th, they moved up the start date for deeming it a national security event um, much earlier so that the city was basically locked down. Um, and we determined, we already had a very light footprint because of the pandemic um, for our other events. And um, so we didn't, in terms of um, the physicality of what we were doing, we didn't have to make any changes. In terms of making people feel co feeling comfortable um, traveling to Washington to sing the anthem or another performance at the inaugural ceremony or coming to uh, participate in the Celebrating America program on inaugural night, you know, we had to, you know, we worked very hard in strengthening security around that, but also making people feel comfortable, um, which meant a lot of security briefings and helping them understand the protocol. Um, but in addition to the talent, you know, we had hundreds of people working on these shows and many of them traveling to DC. We had our production um, uh, studio set up at a hotel downtown. Uh, we never told anybody where it was. Um, and we needed to work to make sure that the people traveling to DC to produce this thing um, also felt comfortable. Um, so, you know, long story short, we didn't make any changes with the program. There was a lot of behind the scenes work um, to ensure that we had everything locked up um, and that everybody felt comfortable participating. I mean, you know, you, you referenced the, the evening event, the Celebrating America, kind of the, the inauguration ball. Um, you know, that was so well received. I mean, in these beautiful visuals of, you know, John Legend playing the grand piano and the backdrop of Lincoln Memorial or Katy mm -hmm. Perry kicking off this stunning display of fireworks probably ever televised. I mean, you know, and of course, cutting between these live and, and, and pre-taped segments. 
I mean, do you, and then we also talked about the, you know, the, the virtual, the, the roll call at the DNC. I mean, do you think that this is the future? Are we moving towards at least a hybrid of um, sort of, you know, online style <clears throat> segments with sort of yeah. the, the, the conventional kind of traditional inauguration? You know, I think it's too soon to say, and ultimately it is up to, um, you know, four years from now, it'll be up to President Biden. Um, uh, you know, four years after that, it would be up to Vice President Harris. <laughs> um, Predictions made live here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I have to say there are elements of what we did that I think will be carried forward. Um, and ultimately it was allowing more people to participate. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't need a inaugural ticket to participate. You didn't need to pay a lot of money to go to a ball. We brought it to you and we pulled in you and your community into it. Yeah. Um, same for the convention. You didn't need a credential to participate. Um, we had lots of, you know, hundreds of crowdsourced videos of people um, uh, talking about different things that we wove through the convention to, to pull people in. Um, we had a, a, a technology where you could be watching the, whether it's the inaugural or the convention, um, and you would be reacting to what you're seeing on screen and all of a sudden you are on screen. Um, and that was all, you know, the obviously the technology is not organic, but the reactions were all organic and it allowed people a way to participate. Yeah. So we, we sort of democratized these two events. Um, and also because it was virtual, we were very, excuse me, I, I know, honey, I'm, done. I'm almost done. Sorry. No, um, I, I, I've been there. So. Virtual learning. Yes, yes. Um, My son's upstairs doing his stuff. Um, you, we, we were able, because it was virtual, we could be much more disciplined in the messaging. Right. And it was really important to sort of meet the country where it was at that point, yeah. um, which made storytelling all that much more important. Mm -hmm. And normally in an inaugural or a convention, the storytelling, you just don't have a discussion about that. That's not what the purpose of those events are. Right. But because of the change in format and our need to meet the country where it was, they had just gone through a very traumatic time. Um, whether it was the pandemic or watching the Capitol uh, be breached or depending upon your politics, um, how you felt you know, during the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. um, and we needed to address that. And really, if you look at our messaging around the inaugural, it was of course an inauguration is the celebration of a new president um, but staying true to who Joe Biden is and the messaging that he won the election on, it was really about celebrating the American people and the strength and perseverance of the American people um, and making them feel like they had a stake in this, um, but that, yes, we've gone through a very tough time, but there are things happening across our society, like the heroes that we've lifted up through celebrating America or the virtual parade who are you know, in the midst of a pandemic going above and beyond. And they are really representative of what is happening in these communities where the American people are coming together to help each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, lifting up those storylines, connecting those storylines to a performance. Um, there was much more connective tissue in these um, 
virtual events than you normally get in um, a inaugural or a convention. And I think that methodology uh, will stick with it. Right, right. And I, I, I Stephanie, I know, I know you you have to run, but I, I wanted to get one more question in, and and mm-hmm. that's you know how did you factor in things like Twitter in your planning of the inauguration? I mean, for me, I mean, I remember watching you know Barack Obama's. 2009 inauguration with with my eyes glued on the TV, but with with President Biden, I watched scrolled, watched scrolled, and it was you know within my phone was popping with IMs and DMs and people saying, "Have you seen this?" or you know, "Have you looked at mm-hmm. this yet?" So you know, I, I mean, with with when when President Obama was elected or um, inaugurated, I don't even remember if I had an iPhone yet. So you know, how did you they factor were just that? Coming out. Yeah, right. Like exactly. Um, so how did you factor that into the planning and people's engagement with social media? Uh, well, I mean, social media um, for us, it was a way to tease out and build excitements um, for people to tune in. Um, and we we had lots of different ways that people could watch. Um, obviously, the networks covered it, which was tremendous. Um, but we also had our own virtual feed. Uh, we also worked with Amazon Prime and on every social media platform, we had our feed. So it was driving, you know, in advance of the inaugural, it was teasing out segments uh, and content and building excitement and momentum for people to tune in however they wanted to tune in. Throughout the events, um, it allowed us to make that content last longer. You know, it wasn't just a moment in time. Uh, it was a moment in time that you could come back to through social media. Um, and it was a way to generate conversation and engagement around what we were producing. Um, and then, you know, the, the third, the last thing I will say is, um, you know, for all of the talent that we had participating in these events, they were our best evangelists. Um, for um, not only getting people to tune in, um, but um, distributing content. So this content will continue to be distributed for who who knows how long, um, in perpetuity, I guess, um, and that the talent had a big role in doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I, so speaking of talent, I I have to ask you one, it's yes or no question. Um, Did you predict, did you know that Amanda Gorman would be the breakout star from the inauguration? I knew she was pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, if you watch any of her other YouTube um, um, performances, um, she's an incredible young woman. Mm-hmm. And um, when I read the draft of her poem, um, I just was so taken with it. And she just, she met the moment. And for someone, you know, she is a, a young woman. I just don't remember being <laughs> that sophisticated <laughs> or introspective at, um, at that age, but she, yeah. she's an incredible woman. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for your time today. And um, thank you for so much of your insight. And we'd love to, there are so many questions that I, that I didn't even get a chance to get to. But I know, so, I'm so, sorry. No, I, I, this, this is sorry a bit of, no, no worries. My, my, my husband's upstairs with my son getting him set up for kindergarten as well. So I completely understand. But, but it's a good reason to have you back on the show one day. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. I hope well, so. Well, thank you so much. And okay. thank you to our listeners. Um, and we'll be back with another episode um, soon. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. 
Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.